Our New Testament lesson is drawn from the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verse 8 through 20. But, in, but then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which were by nature not gods. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing, always, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Life is pain, princess. Anyone saying otherwise is attempting to sell you something. I don't know if I got the line exactly right, but it's from The Princess Bride, and it is wonderfully cynical. Uh, what Wesley, or the Dread Pirate Roberts, is saying is that uh, everybody is out to make a buck, and uh, if they tell you they're not out to make a buck, the one thing you can guarantee is they're out to make a buck. The world is filled with people who are looking to take from you, to uh, benefit from you, some in legitimate ways, some in illegitimate ways, but if you don't think men are looking to take advantage of you, you need to truly learn because that's what's happening. The fact that this is true is not exactly a new secret. Wise men throughout history have wrestled with the question, is there actually virtue in men at all? Is there anything we can talk about where man is actually virtuous and good? And added on to that question has been the question, if there is, what would we call virtue, what would we call true goodness, and what would it consist of? And if you don't think this hasn't been a cottage industry for philosophers all through history, uh, we, we could fill up a library the size of this room with their volumes and keep going. It, it's been a major question. Is there a virtue? Is there a highest virtue? And if so, 
how would you define it? Is there anything good among men at all that can be pointed to? Well, historically, uh, the answer has come out yes. And in the English language, we have a term for it. That term is love. It's a powerful word. You will find it in your English Bibles in many places, uh, although occasionally it's in the King James Version translated charity, but it's generally love. But it's not a well-defined term. In fact, it's almost cliche to point out that in the modern day, if somebody says they love somebody or something, they really haven't told you much at all. Because we use the term love for I love my spouse, and we use the term love for sentences like I love ice cream, and if these are the same thing, then honestly, we're not really sure what we're talking about. In the ancient world, there were five terms put forward to suggest the highest of moral virtue, And these terms are kind of interesting. They're kind of the best men can do left to their own devices. The first one that was put forward was called storge. And it does appear in the Bible once. It appears in 1 Corinthians. And storge means family affections. Here, the wise men were basically saying, well... The highest virtue that a man can rise to is to acknowledge that he is part of a family and in the context of being in a family, give himself to the family. The family gives to him and he defines himself by the family unit, so he should give to the family unit. Storge, highest virtue. It does have some virtue to it, as I said, Paul uses the term once in 1 Corinthians, but is that the highest virtue? There is an issue of motivation there, and if you begin to really think about it, it's just a little mercenary. I am in a family, and the family meets my needs, and I will give myself to the family so the family will be bettered, so that everybody's need will be met better were a biological family. But uh, the motivation there, you know, it comes back to the self. It really does. I make the family better because it's my family, therefore things are better for me. Again, there's a virtue there, and men do demonstrate it. Even unsaved men can have storge. But is that true virtue? The question of motivation muddies the water. The second one that was put forward was Phileo, and uh, we named the city of Philadelphia after it. Uh, It means brotherly affections, and if you go to Philadelphia expecting people to treat you that way, don't. But it does mean brotherly affections, and here the philosophers brought forward the idea that, well, Storge may be a little too uh, narrow. Rather, we should see mankind as our family, and we should treat everyone as we would treat a brother. 
and that would be the highest virtue, and men can do that. But again, the question of motivation returns. Why do we treat mankind well? Well, it's because I'm part of mankind. And again, I get back good for the good I give. Uh, it's as my decidedly unsaved father would put it, good is better because it's nicer. And that's not exactly the highest of virtues. Plato recognized that and leaned right into it and said, do you know what the highest virtue that men can demonstrate is? Well, it's eros. And we get the term erotic from this, but that's not really what Plato was talking about. Plato said, you know, uh, the motivation here is you give to get, and quite frankly, that's all man can do. Man can give to you hoping to get back from you, and if that works, yay. Because you can give to him hoping to get back from him, and what you are is you're in a symbiosis. You're in a relationship of two leeches that are draining each other. You really do it for me. That's why I keep you around. You really meet my needs, and I really appreciate that. That's why we're connected and it turns out, I meet your needs too. And so, that's a wonderful situation, and that's all the virtue man can really have, said Plato. His disciples after him went a step further and defined humanity as a set of uh, statistics that consumes things. And that was Plato's idea of virtue. As long as you get something from me, uh, that's good. And as long as I get something from you, that's good. Let's hope that doesn't break. Let's hope I don't become sick and weak where I can't really give you anything because that's going to knock the system down and you're not going to stay around because now you're just giving to me and I'm not giving to you. Plato says, well, too bad. That's all virtue is. It is a symbiotic relationship. Men live together to benefit themselves, but they also benefit others in kind. And the book is now closed. As you might imagine, this did not really satisfy a lot of people who felt, you know, if there's a virtue, it should be higher than that. And a word developed, and I emphasize developed because nobody really coined it, uh, a word developed which meant virtue that's higher than Plato can go to. Something else. And that word was agape. And here, uh, they weren't sure exactly how to fill it with content. But they said there is something higher, something better than self-fulfillment. We don't know what it is, but it's out there and it's agape. Guess which term the New Testament is absolutely filled with? It's agape, but the, the apostles fill it with a content. They speak directly to this question, can man actually be virtuous? And they say, yeah, agape exists. And you know what agape is? Uh, God is agape. And what God has done specifically in Jesus Christ, that's agape. 
Agape is when you give to somebody else sacrificially. God the Father gets nothing out of humanity. If you get a minister behind the pulpit who stands up and says, as I've watched, why did God create man? Well, turns out man was low, that God was lonely. He had existed for eternity past. Time means nothing to God. But for some reason, he decided he was now lonely and his needs were not being met. So he created man to interact with. Anybody who tells you that is totally off the biblical reservation. God isn't uh, given more from you. When you glorify God, you're just kind of reflecting his glory back to him. God is not lessened if mankind doesn't glorify him. But God acted in Jesus Christ, and he acted unilaterally. Christ came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The world was created by him, but the world did not recognize him. This was not a surprise to God. This was a part of the plan. God gave absolutely sacrificially that God the Son would live as a man, die as a man, experience death as a man, all of which was giving to you without God being benefited, because God can't be from you. God was totally, totally self-giving. And so the New Testament defines the highest virtue of men and basically says man can't be it, but man can see it. Man can only be it if God is involved because God himself embodies it. It is the giving without receiving. And it is what you see in Jesus Christ our Lord. He gives and doesn't get back. Now, why am I going into this? Well, it's because of the many things happening in our text before us today. Uh, Paul is talking about motivations. He is talking about people doing things and the reason why they do them. And he is uh, contrasting motivations and therefore virtues. If you look at what he says about himself... Uh, At the beginning of the passage and at the end of the passage, he points out why he is doing what he is doing. He is relating to these Galatians. He is getting involved in their lives by sending them an epistle. Why is he doing that? What's motivating him to do that? Well, uh, let's run down through it. The first thing that he points out that he would like to see happen for the Galatians is deliverance for them from, quote, childish basic principles so that they grow to spiritual adulthood. We've had a whole sermon on that. I'm not going to go back over it. But Paul says, you know what I want for you? Um, You were under the law, and the law is basic spiritual principles. It's it's, uh, training you in spiritual childhood that you can grow up into adulthood. I want you to be benefited from escaping that and growing up. Growing up into Jesus Christ, growing up into dependence on God through faith, 
which is actually a spiritual adulthood. You find that in verse 9. Secondly, what does Paul want to do from his ministry uh, in general? Well, he wants to see the Galatians delivered from, quote, gods, end quote, that aren't really gods. That's in verse 8. And Paul combines the idea of the basic principles of the world with the idea that the Gentiles in particular had fallen into worshiping the things of the world. He has already said, you know, when you were spiritual children and you were under the law to teach you right from wrong, uh, there was a real limitation to the law, which can be seen by the fact you all became idolaters. You began to worship idols. You began to worship natural principles. You didn't find the true God. You went off into spiritual darkness. What are the apostles doing for people like the Galatians? They are seeing them delivered from either superstitions or, at the worst, demons who are receiving their worship. Why does Paul do what he does? Well, it's so that you, the Galatians, might be freed from idolatry. Third, and this is also again in verse 9, it's that the Galatians might know God. It's the flip of what I was talking about before. Paul uses covenantal language. He says, now, however, in Jesus Christ, which we by the gospel have connected you to, in Jesus Christ, you actually do know the one true God. You know the God that created the world. You know the truth about what God has been doing in history. You relate to him by the Spirit, and Paul has already introduced the Spirit in chapter 3, where he went on several times about how the Spirit has come into you, the Spirit moves among you, the Spirit works miracles among you. Now you actually know God in a realistic existential way. And I want that for you. That's my motivation. And then he, he modifies what he says just a little bit and says, well, it, it's, it's that God knows you. And you think, well, that's a funny way of putting it. Doesn't God know everything? And the answer is yes. If you're talking about cognitive knowing, God knows the movement of every atom at every point in space and time. But the language is covenantal, this is the same kind of knowing you as Jesus saying in the Sermon on the Mount, there will be many in that day who say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not done really dramatic Steven Spielberg kind of things in your name? And I will say to them, I never knew you, depart from me. It's not that Jesus doesn't know who they are, it's he covenantally doesn't know them. They are not part of him by covenant, they are not under the blood of his sacrifice, they are not his people, therefore they are strangers to him. But looking at the theme here of the apostle's motivation, the apostle doesn't want that for them. The apostle wants them to know God and be known by God. He wants them to be reconciled to God, to walk together with their creator 
That's why he does what he does. Moving to the end of the section, to verse 19, uh, Paul uses some rather startling language. He talks about being in childbirth for them. And um, any woman who is giving birth to a child would really kind of feel that. Uh, as, I, as I've said to several people over this last week, and I don't know why it's been a major theme, but um, you know how people talk about we're pregnant when your wife is pregnant? No, you're not. Your wife is pregnant. You, you're just watching. There is, there is pain and suffering and struggle to give birth to a child there is, there, there's a good deal of self-giving involved in having a child. Uh, that's one of the reasons why fallen humanity turns to abortion. A lot of women say, I don't want to go through the suffering of having a child because I have to self-give to the child for it even to come into existence. Well, Paul uses that language about himself. What is my motivation as an apostle of Jesus Christ? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Well, it's so that you can be born. You are not yet born spiritually. You're not reborn in the language of John or Peter. And what I want for you is that you be reborn. But I'm going to have to go through the childbirth. And that means it's going to be messy. It's going to cause suffering for me. It's not really what I want to do uh, a woman may have 12 children over her lifetime, and she may want to be the mother of a large family, but I'll guarantee you, if you ask her, would you rather not go through the pain and suffering of childbirth, I've never known a woman say, no, nah, I really want that. You know, that, that's really what, what I got going on here. Paul is saying, I am willing to suffer for you that you might be spiritually reborn into the kingdom of God. That's what I want for you, spiritual life. And then finally, in verse 20, uh, well, I'll just read verse 20. He wants peace with them, with God, and himself. He wants to walk with them in peace with them. I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Paul is saying, I'd like to be with you. I would like to see you in spiritual health so that I could be at peace. I'm not. This is really the only one here which is just a, a little self-focused. All the rest, if you look at these six things, uh, if you think about what the ancients uh, said about agape and what the rest of the New Testament says about it, Paul is kind of embodying it. What is the highest virtue? What is what God wants from us ethically? Well, it's agape. It's mirroring God himself in the actions of Jesus Christ that are selfless. Well, effectively, that's what Paul says he's doing. I'm suffering so that you can be reborn. I am ministering to you so that you can grow up. I am ministering to you so that God will not hold you in wrath anymore. I am reaching out to you and giving of myself that you might live in reconciliation to God. That sounds 
pretty agapeish. It sounds pretty Christ-like. But in verse 17 through 18, which is a briefer section, Paul brings out the motivation of the false teachers. And having shown his own, you cannot but read this passage and realize he's making a contrast. There are people who have come and taught you other things. And this being planet Earth, that's going to happen. The the truth is, you walk out the door, you turn on a radio, you queue up the internet. uh, There will be 50 people there wanting to teach you something. Paul shines the spotlight on these false teachers in the churches of Galatia, and he asks the question, why are they doing what they're doing? And if you look at verse 17 and 18, he has uh, four things that he mentions about them. First, he says, they are zealously courting the Galatians. Now, that has a certain ring of sinisterness to it, And Paul backs up a little bit and says, you know, uh, it is a good thing to be zealously courted for a good thing. But are the Galatians being courted by these teachers that a good thing will take place? Well, uh, no, actually. Paul uses the very term, they are zealously courting you for no good. Just as Wesley spoke in The Prince's Bride, um, generally, all of humanity is out to make a buck. They are out to profit in some way. And Paul says, now these false teachers, why are they so zealous to win you? They want something from you. They want to be benefited by you. That's what they're, why they're doing what they're doing. And That's not that strange, because that's what people do. But they are doing that. Uh, What they want to do is they want to exclude you from the assembly of the real Church of Christ. They want to hack you off from fellowship with the real body. And they want you to be, in Paul's words, zealous for them. Paul is writing in such a way that his, his hearers will read this letter and then look up from it and will look right into the human faces of the people he's talking about. So if Paul is mischaracterizing them, the readers will be able to look at them and say, Paul has you totally wrong. You obviously are here for my spiritual benefit. You're obviously here to to reconcile me to God. You're not getting anything out of this. They can do that if that's the case. But if they read the epistle and then they look up into the very human face of the people being talked about, Paul is convinced, and the Spirit of God moving him to write this is convinced, they will see what Paul is talking about. And so they will. The truth is, these legalistic teachers, these people who want to retie the Christian church to a fallen version of Judaism, a version of Judaism that is centered around uh, merely uh, 
doing right and not doing wrong and not centered around the promise of God in Christ, they want to be benefited by you. I know that this is, I know that this is something that, that has never come up, and you, you, you probably can't realize this is true. But it turns out some religious teachers actually are in it for a buck. A few, a couple. Well, these Judaizers are exactly that way. They're in it because they're benefited. They will be benefited by the attentions of the Galatians churches. Uh, they will probably be benefited in a physical way because ministers receive their hire. And more, uh, it will help them be protected from Rome because Rome is against this odd Christus cult, but Rome has given imperial sanction to Judaism, so this is a way to go along to get along. So if y'all just kind of come over here and be a little bit better Jews as Judaism is now, we all be fine and we all benefit. Paul has shined a light on their motivations, effectively asking which of these motivations is godly? Which of these motivations is agape? Which of these motivations look like what God has done in Jesus Christ? Which one is self-giving and really not getting anything back? Well, the reader would say, yeah, it's pretty obvious. The apostles are the ones who are given of themselves for no benefit, but they might also stop and say, you know, uh, you're holding back. You're, you're not really showing us what you're really getting out of this, and I'm sure it's something. Well, actually, Paul is holding back. He is not saying things he could say to them, but what he does say to other Christians, Paul does get a number of other things out of his ministry. Let us turn to a few passages where he goes into that. Uh, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 to 33. Here, Paul is again contrasting himself with false teachers that have come into the church, uh, and here he's talking about the benefits that he receives. Uh, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews five times I received forty stripes minus one, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weakness, in, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside the other things what come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches." Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? That would be a good place to stop. What do I get out of this, says Paul? As an apostle of Jesus Christ, as one sent by him to do the work of God, I get beat up a lot. I get thrown in prison. I, I, I'm in constant danger. I end up in the water. 
That's what I get. Or, as he writes to the church at Philippi, uh, in the fourth chapter, uh, specifically verse 11 through 13, he says this, I, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere, in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. For some reason, that last verse gets put in Hallmark cards. And it's seen as very positive. And and it is positive, but you have to understand how it's positive. Paul is saying, as a minister of the gospel... Uh, sometimes I have everything I need and, and I'm not in want. But a lot of the time, I am in want. A lot of the time, I don't have the things that really most people would think they need. A lot of times, I have to go without. But it's okay <clears throat> because I have Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is not a teaching that just shoot for your dreams, kid, anything is possible. It's in my need, my want, my suffering, Christ will be everything I need. And the only way you can say this is if you have been in suffering and need, and you are testifying that Jesus was all you had to have at that moment. So again, when Paul writes to the Philippians, Paul says, you know what, get out of my ministry... Uh, sometimes I live with everything I need, but a lot of the times I don't. A lot of the times I suffer. That, that's what I get. Or uh, when he comes to the end of his ministry, uh, Paul has this to say about how it's going to end. He writes to his disciple Timothy in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, verse 6 and 7. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and my time of departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. I'm about to die. I'm in prison for the second time. Um, Caesar is going to have my head cut off, and I know that. I write 2 Timothy knowing my death is soon. If you read out of the New English Bible, for some reason they have translated 2 Timothy in a way that Paul says, you know, I hope I get out of this, but I, have no re- I don't know why they do that, because there's not another English translation in the world I've ever read that does that. The, the only reason I can think they would do that is to try to put a contradiction in the Bible, because this is uh, Paul's swan song. He knows he's going to die. And he describes not only his coming death, but his entire life as, I have been a drink offering. I started out full, but the great priest poured me out on the altar. I have been used up. I have given everything I have that people might be reconciled to God in Christ I have been poured out all over the offering, and now I'm empty. I have given because God has taken hold of me, and he has given me. And now I've come to the end. I've fought the fight. 
that's fighting, you get hit. I've run the race, you get tired and worn out. I've come to the end, and I'm poured out like a drink offering. That is what I have received from my ministry. He doesn't mention any of those, though, to the Galatians. The only one he does mention is in verse 16. What is he receiving now for his care for a church that is dangling by a spider web over hell's very maw? What is he getting? Well, read verse 16. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Of all those things Paul could have pointed to to them and said, look, I'm the real deal. Uh, People who come from God give to you. They don't take. The only one that Paul mentions is, I have come to you and spoke the truth to you. I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. I have have spoke directly from him. I mentioned that in verse 1. Where did I get my gospel? I got it from a supernatural encounter with the risen Christ who literally met me and told me what to say. So I have brought you the literal truth from the very mouth of God, and you have responded with seeing me as the enemy. That's what the flesh does when confronted by the truth. There's no getting around it. If you are going to speak God's truth, you're going to make men mad. They're going to rebel against it. And especially if you teach them the truth of grace. As my Arminian mentor pointed out so long ago, nothing makes men more squirm in their seat and angry than teaching them about the grace of God. They don't want to hear it. They want to think that they're worthy of heaven, they do something, God ultimately has to look at them and say, you the prize. Well, it ain't true, and if you tell people the truth, they will respond just like the Galatians, you're my enemy. Take it to the bank, that's going to happen. And that's what Paul is getting out of his ministry to them. The ungrateful children who do not want to grow up into grace are biting him. That's what he's getting. That is what God's servants will get. If you are a servant of God, He is going to pour you out like a drink offering. If you are a servant of God, you're going to live out agape. You're going to give and not get back. And that sounds very, very beautiful and pious until you actually live it out. And you realize there's a lot of pain involved in this. And there is. But God in Christ became man and dwelt among us We beheld his glory, and we had none to show him. And he went to a cross and death that we might have eternal life. Agape is what God does in Jesus Christ. And here you see the minister of Christ living that out. And he is able to shine the light on the false teachers and say, they're in it for themselves, I'm really in it for you. Now, 
Paul is writing to a specific group of false teachers in a specific time in a specific place. But is it possible to generalize these principles? Is it possible to say, this doesn't just apply to these false teachers. Honestly, this kind of applies to every false teacher. And I think the answer is yes. Because quite frankly, almost all men who ever try to influence you are going to be like these men. They have something they're going to get out of it. That is fallen humanity. It doesn't really matter what the false teaching is. If you go back into their heresy and why they're pushing it, they're doing it to get something out of it. Whether it's an ethical heresy, whether it is a sociological heresy, whether it is a doctrinal heresy, why is this man standing at my door handing me literature? He thinks he's going to get something out of it. That's how men work. And what Paul does here is pretty universal. The same is true for those who are truly servants of Christ. Who is the real servant of Christ? It's the one who is serving you because God is pouring him out. Is it possible to reverse engineer this? Is it possible to take this as a principle and look at my playlist of iPod, my, my uh, reading literature, the, the ministers that I, I look to, and use this as a measuring stick for who is really God's servant? Proverbially speaking, I would say yes. The apostle here has made a very dramatic contrast, and, and it stands. Um, who's the real deal? It's the one who's not getting a lot out of it and wants your benefit. What about the guy that's living in the lap of luxury? Now, I use the term proverbially because... I can already point out some exceptions to the very thing I'm telling you. In the book of Philippians, if we go back to there, in the first chapter, uh, Paul talks about some men who are kind of sort of false teachers, even though they're teaching the right gospel, but they're doing it for the, for the wrong motivation. In chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 15 to 18, Paul says, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. But the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, I will rejoice. So Paul himself points out, you know, you could have the guy out there who's literally preaching the right gospel, but he's not living in love, and you notice Paul used the term there. Uh, he's actually doing it selfishly. He's preaching the very truth of God, but he is a wolf in sheep's clothing because he wants to benefit off of it. Just recently, we have seen such a man 
who has come to light right after he died, that that's what he was doing. And Paul's response to that is, well, the gospel was preached, and God will spiritually use that as he sees fit, so I will rejoice the gospel was preached, but you can have a man preach the literal truth and be doing it for evil reasons. And then there is the strange case of uh, Reverend Blair Bradley, a friend of mine who is uh, one of my inspirations. I love the guy. He was a health, wealth, and prosperity Pentecostal preacher in Mississippi who had a church of about 450 people, which, you know, in reform circles, we call that a megachurch. Um, he was very well-liked, very charismatic guy in, in every aspect of that term. And then in God's providence, God introduced him to the Reformation, which he had never encountered before. And as he began to read the writings of men who actually possessed the gospel, uh, Blair realized, I don't possess the gospel. He saw the contrast between his selfish religion and the religion of Christ. He also came under the influence of John MacArthur, which kind of helped. He realized, I'm not preaching the truth, and so he began to preach the truth. He began to preach the Reformed faith, and he managed to preach his church down to 19 people, which was mostly his family. But in the interim, the church has grown back. It's now about 275 people. And Blair, when he was a health, wealth, and prosperity charlatan, didn't mean to be a charlatan. He honestly thought he was speaking for God when an Ananias and Sapphira came along and said, John, you're doing it wrong. Uh, he, he repented, and he serves God rightly now. So you might have a false teacher who honestly is just truly in darkened and doesn't realize what he's doing. But painting with a, a broad brush, painting proverbially, why are false teachers doing what they're doing? Why are they wanting to lead you away from the gospel of grace in Christ and make you depend on something else? Well, just like these false teachers, it's because they're going to get something out of it. The real ministry of God is the truth, and those who minister it are not going to get a lot of attaboys from their fellow human beings. Their attaboys will come in heaven, their riches will be in heaven, earth, probably not. But that's what you would expect ministering among a fallen race turn to selfishness, what do you expect? 